0: Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Decenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Eric van Kauser. He's professor and departmental chair of philosophy at the University of Arkansas. His main areas of research are in the philosophy of psychology slash mind and metaphysics. And today we're going to talk about some of the work he's been doing. On beliefs, their functions, their social functions specifically, and also we're going to talk a little bit about self deception. So, Dr. Funkhauser, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Well, thank you.
1: I'm very happy to be here. I love your podcast.
0: Great, thank you. So, uh, let's start perhaps with some i mean in this particular case i want to start with a definition or at least an understanding of what beliefs are because uh i mean I, I, as far as i understand it uh, the way people think about beliefs and the way they define them or not uh, i mean there's no consensus on it and different people define it in the, uh, define them in different ways like philosophers of mine and perhaps cognitive scientists, so uh, what would be your definition of how do you think we should understand the concept of belief?
1: Okay, that's obviously a good question to start with. Um, I try to be as neutral and um, broad as possible in, in my understanding of belief, but of course I have um, views here that not everyone's going to accept. Um, so if I had to succinctly say what belief is, it's just the most general attitude of regarding a proposition as true. Um, and then there are follow-up questions like, what would that really, what does that mean to regard a proposition um, as true? But um, it's not supposed to be like uh, domain or, or, I'm sorry, situation specific. Um, so it's supposed to be an overall attitude, belief is, uh, that that holds for the most part, across context, not just accepting proposition as true in this one situation, but you know, in general, accepting it uh, as true. Um, uh, beliefs, I think, are dispositional states, okay? Uh, they dispose us to think, to feel, to act in certain ways. Um, we're not always aware of what it is that we believe. Uh, And because of that, we are fallible when it comes to self-knowledge of our beliefs. We may think we believe something that we don't actually uh, believe, okay? So we might not be aware of all of our beliefs. And I think that there are many factors that contribute to determining uh, what it is that we regard as true. Um, Our judgments, our assertions are pretty good indicators of what we regard as as true. Um, So our actions what we accept as a premise in practical reasoning. But problem is that these things can conflict. We may assert that something is true, but we may act otherwise, and so we have to weigh all these different factors. Um, as a general rule, I tend to weigh behavior more than other factors in determining what it is that uh, people uh, believe. I think actions tend to speak louder uh, than words. Uh, I also think actions in higher stakes situations um, are better indicators of belief that shows what you really believe if you're willing to act on it in a, uh, in a, in a high stakes um, environment. Um, one thing I should say that's kind of distinctive, of, or I mean not original by any means, but distinctive about uh, my understanding of belief is that the norms of epistemology, okay, uh, don't override every other kind of norm or or function uh, that belief can have. A lot of times people have beliefs uh, not for good epistemic reasons, Mm -hmm. and sometimes their beliefs serve functions besides getting at the truth. Okay, so uh, for several years now, my my research has been in the area of what I'd call motivated reasoning uh, or strategic incentivized reasoning, where people favor uh, a belief not because it's true, but for some other reason they, they're they're incentivized to believe it as as true. So like one controversial aspect uh, of my understanding of belief is that belief doesn't have to strongly aim at the at the truth, mm-hmm. even though when you believe something you do genuinely regard it as true. Yeah. That was a mouthful, I should probably pause a little bit and see.
0: <laughs> yeah, we definitely need to unpack all of that and there are at least three points there that you made that i would like to get more into so first of all at a certain point there at the beginning you mentioned something along the lines of beliefs not having to be uh, we not having to be necessarily aware of our beliefs so does that mean that uh, some of our beliefs might be uh, essentially unconscious let's say we cannot really have Uh, conscious access to them i mean i'm asking you that because we have this sort of uh, common sense view of beliefs as something that uh, i mean if you believe it you should know that you believe it right or that beliefs are always necessarily something that we have conscious access to but you're saying that that's not necessarily always true
1: um, good question. Uh, I don't have completely well def- you know uh, I'm not committed to, to a very specific position here, but I mean it depends in part what you mean by uh, accessible to consciousness. Okay. like uh, accessibility comes in, in degrees. There are certainly uh, things that I think we believe that we're not consciously aware of. Now mm-hmm. could we access them well in principle, like you know sometimes people go to, to therapy to try to uncover. Uh, their beliefs and uh, those unconscious beliefs that, they're, that, that are being sought uh, are accessible in some sense. Like they could, after going through a certain process, uh, be accessed or just in regular life if people point out things to you about your behavior, maybe you then realize, oh, I do believe this uh, and I wasn't aware of it. So it, it depends what you mean by accessible. Accessible can mean like you could access it right now. Or it could mean after going through some kind of process like therapy or having other people point out things to you, you know, you can uncover it. I tend to think that most beliefs that are, if not all beliefs, that are unconscious are, in principle, accessible uh, to consciousness. We, they could be accessed. Yeah.
0: Right. I, I mean, because we tend to have this idea uh, that... Uh, Beliefs are something uh, that we can talk about. I mean, even if sometimes we are not completely sure of what our beliefs are or we don't have a definite answer to this or that question, at least we can say, so I'm not sure about that, or I'm not sure on that topic, something like that, but we tend to have this idea that whatever our beliefs are, even if we're not completely settled on particular issues, that we can always talk about them.
1: Yeah, that's true. I guess if there's one lesson that that I try to would try to draw though is that I think people tend to be overly confident about um, how much they're aware of, how much they know, what they actually believe. Okay, and when and, and when when people get things wrong about what they believe, when they say they believe something and they really don't, I don't I don't necessarily think that they're lying to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be quite sincere and they're just mistaken. They. You know, uh, just a failure of self-knowledge. So I I, I agree um, with the spirit of, of what you're what you're saying. We tend to think that beliefs are something that, yes, we do have access to and we can scrutinize. Mm-hmm. And we can think, uh, should I believe this? You know, um, of course we report them on surveys when people ask and things like that. Like, what do you believe, Ricardo? Uh, and, and you know, you, you can answer this. Uh, but I think people tend to be a little bit uh, overconfident in thinking they definitively know, you know, what it is uh, they believe.
0: Okay. And uh, how do we know uh, then, how do we study, what are the several different approaches we have at our disposal to really figure out if the beliefs that people express uh, are really their beliefs, if they they really believe what they say they believe, or uh, if Uh, that's not the case
1: okay like uh, from a from a third person point of view if we're looking at another person and trying to figure out what it is that they really uh, believe um, I mean I tend tend to accept kind of like a lesson of behaviorism that I'm not a behaviorist uh, Mm -hmm. uh, about about mental states but I do think that behavior should be uh, given um, greatest weight I mean, this is one of the, like, why do we care so much about what people believe? Um, if you go back to people who've written about the ethics of belief, people like W.K. Clifford is famous, you know, essay on the ethics of belief. Um, I take seriously a lot of the, le- uh, the lessons we, we, we were taught by Clifford. That is that uh, beliefs are important. There's an ethics of belief because they guide our actions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and beliefs aren't just private. They're also public. They're, they're, you know, uh, and, and so the, these are the, the primary reasons why Clifford thought that uh, ethics applies to beliefs just like it does to actions because beliefs guide our actions and, uh, and they're not just private, we pass them on um, to other people. So um, I would tend to look at actions as a better indicator of belief than mere mm-hmm. assertion. Um, you know, in psychology and the social sciences, a lot of times they draw conclusions about, about what people believe just based on the results of answers that they give. Basically, their assertions, like their surveys or polls, and these are supposed to, just the answers that people give are supposed to indicate like what it is they, they really believe. Um, but we know that's not 100% accurate. That people don't always know what it is they believe. And then there are other problems. Uh, people outright lie. Sometimes, mm-hmm. and even if they're not lying, there's what's called expressive responding where they give an answer that's kind of like cheerleading for their their side. Like a, a good example of this is after the 2016 uh, US presidential election, you know, people were um, uh, after the inauguration of Trump, he claimed to had this big crowd there bigger than Obama's. and you know they'd show photographs to partisans like, you know, here's the Obama crowd, here's the Trump crowd, which one's bigger? And a lot of Trump supporters would say the Trump crowd when the photograph doesn't reveal this. um, The the people aren't necessarily reporting what it is they they believe, they're just showing their support for Trump by saying the Trump one Mm -hmm. is better. So so we know that this is a problem, that when people say that they believe something when they assert it, um, it's not necessarily indicative uh, of what they really believe. They're not always liars when they say something false about what they believe. They could also just be confabulating, making up a position on the fly. That's very common um, as well. Now, a complication, if I may add, about um, using behavior to to infer what people believe, is there's not a direct like one-to-one mapping between mm-hmm. beliefs and, and behavior, because like, If if you believe something, it it doesn't require that you act in one very specific way. Uh, Your behavior is determined holistically by everything else you believe and you desire. So in any particular case, if someone doesn't act in the way that we would expect a believer to act, um, that that belief description could nevertheless be maintained by making enough Auxiliary assumptions elsewhere say, Oh, well, that's because they also believe this and wanted this. It's kind of Quinean point about, you know, the, the web of belief is what Quine would talk about, where you can make uh, moves elsewhere to always preserve um, some claim. Something like that also holds for psychology. You say, Okay, the, even though the person didn't act as a believer generally would, there's an explanation for why they didn't. So that's a complication
0: also. And also uh, related to that complication, I was thinking that, uh, I mean, the fact that there's not always a one-to-one correspondence between a particular behavior and a particular belief, I mean, isn't it also the case that when we see someone behaving in a particular way, I mean, there are perhaps many different beliefs related to that particular kind of behavior that we might associate with that behavior. I mean, uh, it's very hard to imagine that there would be a behavior that associated with it, we would think that there would be only one single interpretation to that behavior that would correspond to a particular belief, right?
1: Right. And that's probably why we we rely on things like um, assertions and just background assumptions about, oh, what people in this culture tend to believe Mm -hmm. or something to help like winnow down the the viable candidates of like, okay, you know, what are the operative beliefs here? You know, those background assumptions and the assertions that people have, you know, that I'm not saying that we should completely dismiss assertion Mm -hmm. uh, as a guide uh, to belief. Of course, that's very helpful but we shouldn't think that it's completely authoritative we should if we detect behavior that systematically doesn't align with the assertion we we can um, legitimately say okay the person doesn't believe what they say they believe either they're lying or they just lack self-knowledge or something like that um, of their own beliefs
0: Mm -hmm,
1: but yeah your point is, is well taken yeah
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, i mean still talking about behavior let's say that for example for example for a particular belief we have uh, a repertoire of behaviors that we have established that usually go associated with it and we see that someone behaves in a way that does not go along or correspond at all with that particular set of behaviors it's a behavior that really goes into conflict with that particular kind of belief so if that happens should we always assume that uh, if there's that disconnect between uh, a particular belief and the behavior that person exhibits then that person does not really hold that belief or cannot cannot hold it or if she for example stated that she believes x but does not behave accordingly then should we assume that she is an hypocrite for example
1: right um there's no I mean, my answer I think, is going to disappoint you a bit because um um it's not decisive of course if someone if there's that failure to, to behave as expected mm-hmm. um it, it could be due for example just to weakness of will yeah. like Like So suppose the claim is someone has these religious beliefs, and if you have those religious beliefs, you're supposed to go to religious services, you're supposed to treat people in a certain way, you know, all this repertoire, like you were talking about, of behaviors that you expect of someone that has those religious beliefs, and then you're imagining someone who who says that maybe they have these beliefs, um, but they don't behave in those ways. Um, It is possible to actually have those beliefs, and fail to act just because you're weak-willed, mm-hmm. but at, at some point, I mean, if you systematically fail yeah. to act as expected, you know, we're gonna say, okay, you don't really have those beliefs um, in the first place. Like, you're, you're a hypocrite or something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, um then uh, another aspect that you mentioned there at a certain point and i think uh, it was also alluded to when you gave the example of the obama versus the trump inauguration ceremonies and how people uh, interpreted the photographs they saw and if they saw that for example there were more people in the Trump inauguration ceremony versus the Obama inauguration ceremony or vice versa, depending on if they were, for example, a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, is it really the case that if someone uh, expresses a belief, uh, they really uh, necessarily believe it? I mean, because in that particular example, people could be, I don't know, a Trump supporter could be, Uh, claiming that there were, in fact, more people at the Trump inauguration ceremony uh, just because, since he's a Trump supporter, he feels the need to uh, be like a team player and manifest that belief, even though uh, he or she, uh, when she looks at the picture, she really does see that... There's not really more people at the Trump inauguration ceremony than the at the Obama one. Right.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, I meant so I meant that example to be a, a case in which the the person um, do, doesn't really believe it. Mm-hmm. So right. That just just doing the cheerleading. It's hard in, in that example to not see the person as just kind of being deceitful. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would think that they, they're, they're aware that they're like saying um, a falsehood, yeah. but there are, there are other cases of so-called cheerleading and expressive responding where it's clear or more plausible that the more plausible, at least, that, that the person isn't uh, being deceitful. Mm-hmm. They're being sincere, but nevertheless, they're not reporting what they actually believe.
0: Yeah. Right. 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 But, uh, I mean, there are clearly, I guess, examples, and some of them, I guess, might even involve some religious beliefs where, I mean, people might say something, but they also, at the same time, might be aware that they are just um, expressing a belief uh, just to, uh, I don't know, be... uh, just to signal that they are part of a particular social group, for example, but at the same time, they know that they do not literally believe it.
1: Right. right. That certainly happens also. And I should say, like, as a kind of overarching point, so I said, I'm, I'm interested in all these cases of motivated reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, motivated reasoning is most effective... Uh, when there's some ambiguity. A lot of times the reason and evidence doesn't like absolutely demand that you take one position. A lot Mm -hmm. of times in reality uh, evidence for any kind of proposition is kind of a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Like is the new hire going to succeed? Well we've got some evidence that they're going to have a successful career and then there are also some things that cause concern so it's not like the evidence is for all sorts of questions is just overwhelmingly, like decisively on one side. And so if there's some kind of ambiguity, some kind of mixed bag of evidence, um, mm-hmm. that opens the, the door for people, you know, making a case for their favorite position. So motivated reasoning tends to thrive when there's some kind of um, ambiguity, which mm-hmm. is often the case, like um, like few things, well, a few, Few, few matters are like 100% certain where the evidence is, yeah, all on that side. And and you know, like um, like the Trump supporter could say about the, well, this photograph's misleading, you know, they took this picture at a time like early in the ceremony, a lot of people came in later. You know, you can always make these kinds of moves to like, while that bit of evidence on its own might not support the hypothesis that, or the, the, the claim that Trump had a bigger, bigger crowd. You could say, oh, there's other evidence that that does support it, and explain a why, way why that is like misleading.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I mean another point that I was trying to make earlier, and I, I'm not sure if I was really clear on that. But I mean sometimes if people hear Trump supporters saying that at the inauguration ceremony there were literally more people than you could find at the Obama inauguration ceremony, they, uh, they uh, tend to uh, associate some sort of I don't know, perhaps sometimes stupidity uh, uh, with it. Like, for example, oh my God, these people really do look at the two pictures side to side and they are saying that the Trump inauguration ceremony had more people there. That's just stupid. But uh, I mean, it's not necessarily the case that people actually look at the picture and see more people there. They might not really see it, but they just sort of manifest this belief because they are Trump supporters and they wanted to have some sort of positive social, uh, they wanted to function as a sort of social signal to other Trump supporters in that specific case, right?
1: Right, 100%.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I mean, 100% agree. Um, um, but you're imagining that the person, they, that they don't really believe this in that case, right?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, uh, I would like to ask you more about the what you think are some of the main signaling functions of beliefs, but before we get specifically into the signaling function, so what would you say are some of the main general functions of beliefs?
1: Okay, so um, first my kind of orthodox view, which is that primarily... Um, beliefs function to help us navigate the world okay Mm -hmm. so a lot of philosophers cite uh, the line from Ramsey that uh, beliefs are the maps by which we steer you know that's a very common view and for the most part I accept that like Mm -hmm. so so I call that a navigational function they help us Beliefs help us navigate like maps um, our environment and by that I mean they provide us with the means to achieve our desired ends you know um, I want to have some potato chips. Well, I believe that they're in the pantry. So I go to the, I steer myself uh, to the pantry because that's the, the belief I have. I believe that the potato chips are there. So for the most part, I accept that orthodox view that beliefs are, are, uh, have this navigational function. Okay? But I also think that there are all these interesting cases um, where beliefs have other functions because uh, beliefs have other effects. They affect our um, confidence, they affect our emotions, they affect our, like, hedonically, our state of pleasure. Um, so, some beliefs make us happy, um, you know, some, some beliefs make us confident. Um, they affect our social relations. People like us more when we have certain beliefs, okay? So, <clears throat> all these different effects can incentivize beliefs that might deviate from what's rational or or what the evidence supports. So I think that beliefs can acquire new functions because of these non-epistemic benefits that they often provide us, like making us happy, giving us confidence, social acceptance, um, things like that. So um, when, when you have benefits, Uh, or or incentives. If it's possible for beliefs to vary so as to garner more benefits in those categories, we would expect that to happen and we would expect new functions to be acquired for belief. Now I think that these other functions are are secondary to the primary function of of navigation. I I don't think most beliefs are, are for signaling purposes, or, or to make us feel happy, or to give us confidence. But I think there are a lot of interesting cases of beliefs that actually do have these non-epistemic um, functions.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, would you say that there are two, two main domains of functions that beliefs serve? I mean, the epistemic and the non-epistemic ones, would that be fair to say?
1: Exactly. And then, within the non-epistemic camp, I'd also make all sorts of other uh, distinctions um, that I'm happy to make in greater detail. But yes, the the big cut, the big divide, is between beliefs had for epistemic reasons, which is, you know, those are the bulk of our beliefs, I think. That's kind of the... I I call that the primary function of of belief, and it's the default function. Though there are some beliefs, some particular beliefs, whose primary function is not to navigate, but just to, like, signal or something like that. But those are, I think, the exceptions. Um, yeah, I, and, but so I'm interested in the what I think are the interesting cases, the, the unusual ca- cases, because unusual, like, why would someone believe that? That's not what the evidence indicates. Okay, yeah.
0: Uh, but, uh, I mean, between these two different categories, do you think that there's... Uh, like how would you divide let's say the beliefs between these two different categories do you think that depending on the belief perhaps some of them might be uh, might have uh, strictly uh, epistemic functions and others might only serve non-epistemic functions and perhaps if a few of them can serve both functions how does it work exactly okay
1: yeah i do need to say a lot more here to clarify this so when i talk about um beliefs that have non-epistemic functions i want to make clear that i'm still talking that these are really beliefs so these are things that the person Mm -hmm. really does believe is true and and they should guide their actions like they're supposed to still be genuine uh uh real real beliefs Mm -hmm. and you know a complication is that like there's kind of Probably like at least psychologically speaking, if not conceptually speaking, um, you can't escape uh, the the, de- the demands of uh, epistemology completely that even if someone has a belief for non epistemic reasons, they still recruit reasons and evidence to support those beliefs, and that might be necessary that kind of activity might be necessary to have uh, the belief like So, even if you have a belief for non-epistemic reasons, you have to play the epistemology game to to some extent. Um, That might be a conceptual point, or it might just be a point about psychological reality. Like, as a matter of psychological fact, we can't be completely indifferent to reasons and uh, and evidence, okay? But like, um, what really distinguishes the categories between epistemic and and non-epistemic Reasons for belief uh, is what is the goal? Is is the person motivated uh, or aiming at at getting the truth right, or do they have some other kind of goal? Like they just want to have this belief, whether or not it's true, because it gives them benefits. Yeah.
0: So let's get then into the signaling functions. Uh, Would you say that signaling functions are always Non-epistemic, or fall under the purview of uh, non-epistemic functions of beliefs, or uh, how does it work?
1: Okay, good. So um, I've I've been writing a series of papers on on this thesis. I have that beliefs sometimes function as signals that they have signaling Mm -hmm. functions, and so let me say just a little bit about about that first. So um, when and I'm writing a book on this right now, also called The, the Signaling Mind. Um, so, so when I say that beliefs are, are signals, I mean that in the sense that, you know, uh, there's a literature on animal signals, or in economics, what's called job market signaling. So in biology, you know, classic example is uh, a peacock's tail feather mm-hmm. is a signal of genetic fitness, okay? So that tail feather, was designed or selected uh, to communicate to peahens that the the peacock is genetically fit, okay? Or Michael Spence, uh, the Nobel Laureate in economics, um, had this view, has this view that uh, education, like elite education, functions as a signal of quality in the job market. So if someone has Princeton graduate on their, their resume, <clears throat> That's supposed to be a reliable signal of quality as an employee, um, whether or not they learned anything at Princeton. It's just only someone who is of high quality supposedly can get a Princeton can get admitted to Princeton and then graduate from Princeton. Okay. Um, so when I say that beliefs are signals, I I really mean that uh, that they function as signals in the same way that education does or tail feather. Does for, for for peacocks. The core of uh, signaling is communication. Okay. If something has a signaling function, then it functions to communicate information. Okay. Um, and, and that communicative function is acquired through natural selection sometimes, like in the case of Peacock, but also can be acquired through cultural evolution or just individual learning. Like we didn't evolve through natural selection to know that a Princeton uh, degree um, means quality that's something that's you know culturally evolved. okay so if a belief is a signal, then that means that the person has the belief because other people detect that belief and treat them differently. okay So I think it's pretty I think there's a pretty straightforward case that to me makes it like just overwhelmingly likely that beliefs function as signals. That is, other people detect our beliefs. In fact, we're pretty much universally wired to do so. We have this what's called mind reading capacity where where our minds are designed to detect what other people are thinking, Mm -hmm. uh, in particular what it is that they believe, and then other people care about what we believe and they treat us differently based on what they find there. So if other people can detect our beliefs and uh, other people care about what they find there and, and treat us differently based on what we believe, and there can actually be variation, like um, we can respond to these incentives, okay, and so like we can actually have beliefs that maybe diverge a little bit uh, from the norms of epistemology but give us these social benefits, then inevitably we would expect some beliefs to be designed or selected for that reason, that they will function as signals. So the best candidates for beliefs that function as signals are going to be things that deviate somewhat from the norms of uh, rationality or, or evidence-based judgment so that they call out for a special explanation like that's unusual you know just like like a peacock's tail feather uh, diverges from the norms of like flight like feathers are normally like say like for flight but this actually impedes flight
0: mm-hmm.
1: like, so be like why why would the tail feather be like that oh it has a communicative function Right. Uh, so similar for beliefs, if they diverge from the norms of of, of truth and, and reason, we, we say, why? Why do they have? Oh, it's because of what they communicate um, and how they manipulate uh, other people. I don't know if I should pause there, Mhm.
0: But uh, so this is very interesting because, I mean, with this framework, uh, we can also perhaps understand uh, or understand a bit better where, Irrational beliefs or so called irrational beliefs come from right because I mean there there's uh, even though they might be irrational from an epistemic perspective or epistemological perspective, they might still be functional
1: right, right. so this is an important clarification we must make, so a lot of times when I just say irrational, I mean epistemically irrational. But they could be quite practically rational. Like practically wow. speaking, it could be rational for you to have these beliefs mm-hmm. because of the benefits uh, they give you, even though the beliefs themselves aren't well based in, you know, the, the reason and evidence. They're not epistemically uh, rational. So that's always like uh, a qualification that needs to be made. So, like in the past, like people have known about motivated reasoning. For a, for a long time, uh, a lot of the literature in philosophy and psychology from like a few decades ago tended to focus on the, the personal um, effects, the personal benefits of, of motivated reasoning. So like there's this literature on positive illusions uh, that people are motivated to think better of themselves than they in fact are, mm-hmm. self-enhancing beliefs or the so-called better than average effect it's like, why, why would people want this? Or why would people be motivated to do this? Because it makes them feel good. So a lot of the explanations were like first person um, uh, in terms of self-esteem, um, confidence, uh, hedonic benefits. Um, and also in the philosophy literature, people tend to think of self-deception as being, say, for the sake of, of, of just peace of mind. You just want to feel feel good. But there's been a more recent trend that I've been a part of, that Dan Williams has been a part of. That some of it um, is derived from someone else who I know you've interviewed before is Robert Trivers. You know, his work on self-deception that there is this social component to belief. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that our beliefs, and this is what the signaling theory is, is getting at, that's one, one type of social effect, that um, uh, a lot of times we have we're motivated to acquire beliefs not because necessarily they make us feel good, you know, like Trivers would say, you know, natural selection doesn't really care about about that, but it does care about whether or not you have alliances and you have people that are willing to cooperate and trust you, so maybe you be self-deceived so as to manipulate um, other people. And a lot of times I use the word manipulate in a neutral sense, where it's not necessarily a bad thing, you just, you just have certain effects on, on, on other people. So, this is a trend that, that i that I find my work is being a, a part of, emphasizing that a lot of motivated reasoning is for social goals okay rather than just like personal goals like self esteem or feeling good
0: mm-hmm. uh, We will get into uh, into self deception a bit later, uh, but before that, uh, let me just ask you another question so uh, your The way you approach uh, beliefs from a signaling theory perspective, it also applies to at least some cognitive biases, correct?
1: Right, right. Uh, that's another good complication to point out. So I'll talk about um, certain partic- like particular beliefs being functional, mm-hmm. but there are also belief-forming tendencies, including biases, that can be... Um, Uh, Functional, so um, uh, maybe it's it's advantageous for me to believe that um, I'm better at my job as better philosopher than I in fact am. You know, it gives me confidence, and actually, like uh, I'm more likely to get a raise if I like project this um, (laughs) belief to 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 my colleagues, to the dean upstairs, um, um, uh, and, and and so on. Um, Sorry, wait. wait, I lost my. Uh,
0: I was asking you about uh, the application of signaling theory to cognitive biases or some cognitive biases.
1: So, so (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, I I was saying that that's a particular belief. Thank you. um, That that benefits me, but also just like the general like tendency to to form self-enhancing beliefs as a bias, like you were talking about. can can have this social explanation. So yeah, there's this granularity issue. Like, are we looking at individual beliefs as being adaptive, or are we looking at belief forming tendencies as as being adaptive? And um, I want to cover both. Like in reality, it's probably belief forming tendencies um, that that are more primarily like are primarily adaptive. Like. Um, um, Mother Nature, for example, would care about us um, having high social status, but in cultures that takes different forms like, is it academic achievement? Is it athletic achievement? There are particular forms that that general bias can take in a particular cultural environment or, or setting.
0: Yeah. So I guess that this really puts an emphasis on the importance of our social environment and the fact that we are a social animal when it comes to understanding certain aspects of our cognition, that would probably not be there if we didn't need to interact or establish relationships with other people, particularly in the long term, right? Because, I mean, there's also, for example, a particular interpretation to the phenomenon of cognitive dissonance. And I talked with some game theorists about this where... Cognitive dissonance occurs not exactly because we uh, we feel the need to explain to ourselves why we might have two conflicting beliefs, but we experience cognitive dissonance because uh, we might be, uh, we might need to explain to other people why we have a set of conflicting beliefs, right?
1: Right, and I'm sure I know you're you're well aware, like programs like the, the like the Paris Schools, Berber, and so, where they think that a lot of reasoning is is kind of directed at at, at others, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, right? And that, I think that's what you're getting at is an example of this, where you feel like we're going to be held, like other people are going to like um, take us to task, and and yeah. and uh, yeah, so a lot of reasoning is is directed at. Uh, at others, including resolving tension in the case of like cognitive dissonance, like you're describing. Exactly. Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, we've talked about cognitive biases and uh, also what we can call irrational beliefs, but uh, in your work, you also uh, write about dangerous beliefs. So what, what are, what is this category of beliefs?
1: Okay, good. So, um, let me say why I've talked about dangerous beliefs uh, uh, at all. Um, mm-hmm. So, whenever there's a communicative system like signals, there's a concern that some people will cheat, um, mm-hmm. that there will mm-hmm. be liars, right? And so, one of the most fundamental claims in signaling theory is that there's this mechanism to ensure honest signaling, honest communication. That's costly signaling theory or Zahavi's handicap. Uh, principle, that uh, if a signal is somehow costly to produce, the idea is that only someone uh, who is an honest signaler can actually produce it. Um, The important point is that the costs are too much for dishonest signalers. So the idea is that uh, a peacock's tail feather is an honest signal of genetic Mm -hmm. fitness, because only a peacock that's actually genetically fit could afford uh, to produce such uh, uh, a tail feather. Afford in the sense that it takes a lot of energy to produce it, but it also puts the uh, peacock at great risk because it impedes flight, makes it um, more vulnerable to predation. So you have to be really fit to be able to have that handicap, that cost, and still um, and still survive. Be gen- so you have to be genetically fit. Okay. So dangerous beliefs is kind of is supposed to be an example of applying costly signaling theory to beliefs as signals. Um, so a dangerous belief is, is a belief that exposes you to real risk or harm, just like a peacock's tail feather exposes it to greater risk of predation. Um, and, and so if a belief is dangerous, exposes you to real risks, then that shows that you have skin in the game. And like if the belief is a, is a signal, okay, then, then, then only someone who really has that signal quality would afford, to, could afford to take on that dangerous belief. So let's talk about examples in human culture that don't involve belief uh, before we get to, to dangerous belief, like things like tattoos, um, like gang tattoos. Mm-hmm. That's a that that that's dangerous or costly in the sense that if you're not a gang member, you're not going to get that tattoo. Like especially, if it's like on your face or on your neck or something. like that where it's really visible because it burns bridges, it like cuts off opportunities for you. Only someone who's really in the game is going to do that, okay? So that shows that you're committed to the group. That's a costly signal. That's not belief, but you know, it's a costly signal in the human realm. So let's give an example of a costly belief signal that I think is kind of like a a tattoo on the neck or on the face. so a couple years ago in the United States, I mean, this is still probably the case, but uh, there's this huge partisan divide on, um, on uh, the threat that COVID uh, posed mm-hmm. and the efficacy of, of vaccines. Mm-hmm. So there's people who are motivated to be vaccine skeptics because that aligned with their partisan affiliation. Like, uh, I'm, I belong to a certain party. And how, how do we signal that we're committed to this party or to this person who leads the party? Well, we say that COVID is a hoax and that the vaccines are uh, not effective. In fact, they're dangerous. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if someone actually believes that, um, I think, so I think someone can actually believe that for signaling purposes. They can be motivated to believe that because it signals their partisan commitments. Okay, okay. and that I think is a good example of a dangerous belief because um, it's too risky to fake that. If you really thought that the vaccines um, were, were effective, um, um, you couldn't forego uh, getting getting the vaccine. It's only someone who's a true true believer, truly committed. Uh, who would be be willing to take on that belief? It shows that you really have skin in the game. Okay, just like getting a tattoo on your face or, or your neck shows that you're really committed um, uh, to the gang. Uh, it's a it's a costly signal. So the da- by dangerous beliefs I mean uh, costly costly signals, and, and I mean these to be real beliefs. Like the person really believes it. So we think oh yeah, like when I look at I think COVID uh, denial and vaccine skepticism, that's a particularly good example of dangerous belief because these people really believe this stuff. They're not getting vaccinated. So they're genuinely showing their commitment to that tribe or, or that group. So someone else who writes on these types of issues, um, like Dan Williams, he tends to think that the, the that the signals of group uh, identity, um, like the, the beliefs maybe that indicate what party you belong to, are often like ideological and are kind of disconnected mm-hmm. from action, like things you can just say that don't really affect how you live your life. But I think a lot of times the best signals are ones that actually do drive actions um, because they're they're good. That means that they're good indicators. That they pass the honesty standard. Like they're costly signals. They show like where you really stand. Now, the problem with costly signals or dangerous beliefs is that they're also costly. Like, like the costliness makes them believable, you know, like, okay, people really believe, but they expose you to great risk, you know. Um, so it comes with a negative as well.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you think that the fact that they are costly, or at least generally more costly than beliefs that are not dangerous, uh, makes them more effective in their signaling function?
1: I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, the, for a couple reasons, like one, the, what I've just been emphasizing is um, the cost of it, that okay, only someone who's a true believer would be willing to take on those costs. But also dangerous beliefs just tend to clearly demarcate groups. They make for a sharp division. So it makes it very, like signals are supposed to communicate and it very clearly communicates, okay, you're not on this side. You're on this side. You're doing something radical, extreme, uh, dangerous. So, signaling um, beliefs that function as signals tend to lead to polarization, mm-hmm. because the whole point is to distinguish groups, to communicate what side you're uh, you're on. So, um, like I'm I'm giving a lot of examples in, involving partisanship, but it but um, like political beliefs that function as signals often serve the function of being like litmus tests. Like okay, here's a litmus test for um, being a, a Republican in the United States. Um, um, do you believe that climate change uh, is not human caused, or there isn't even climate change? Um, do you believe that abortion is murder? Like all these kinds of things are signals, uh, and and if they're signals, there there's a normative force. Like this is what you should believe, right? And, and And they clearly demarcate the groups. And so that's what the signaling function is supposed to explain a lot of polarization, I think. Because signals, think of animal signals. We want them to be vivid. Um, um, Like a a frog that that has a signal that it's toxic. It's going to be brightly colored. Normally in nature, you don't want to be brightly colored. You want to be camouflaged, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to communicate something, you want it to be very vivid and sharp. You want the peacock's tail feathers to be colorful and so on and how do we make a belief vivid or sharp we make it extreme okay we have strong norms behind it we give it a standard of like okay this is a litmus test okay are you a a republican in good standing or are you a christian in good standing do you know the creed and are you um willing to endorse like very strong claims like there's one path to salvation uh and in fact god is three people or okay, you know so so these creedal doctrines become litmus tests for mm. for group membership, and they clearly demarcate the groups like people who aren 't christians aren 't going to like accept Trinity or or uh, things like this yeah uh,
0: since you 're mentioning uh, some religious examples there, do you think that uh, this concept of dangerous beliefs would connect in any way to what in the cognitive science of religion people call uh, credibility enhancing displays that is uh, yes. cost costly behaviors are participating in uh, costly rituals to really signal strongly that you are committed to a particular religion for example
1: exactly yes so there's this literature like figures from a couple decades ago who started writing that like Sosis and irons um others have written about uh rituals and oh, practices oh. Mm-hmm. uh being costly signals and and basically it's an extension of that same logic that just like the the behaviors uh serve a signaling function the underlying psychological states mm-hmm. can also serve a a signaling function and it as a matter of fact you know, when you just behave in a certain way, you tend to internalize the beliefs that would rationalize those behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. B- by the way, this idea just came to my mind because whenever we talk about the signaling functions of beliefs, we usually tend to think about people uh, positively signaling something to the group they want to be part of Or that they are part of already. But uh, do you think that perhaps there are also uh, costly beliefs that function the other way around? I mean, if I, for example, am part of a group, but I want to leave it, then I start uh, espousing beliefs that really run counter to the beliefs that are normative in that particular group to signal to those people that I want to distance myself right. from them? Do you think that would also work that way?
1: Yeah, good point. So, um, you know, signals always have an audience. And the same signal can, can be addressed to different kinds of audiences. Right. Uh, it can be addressed to your in group to show that you're with them. But it could, like you're talking about, could be just as well addressed to an out group to say, I'm not one of you, to establish kind of contrast. I mean, you see this a lot of times on social media and stuff where people are just trying to, like, trigger the, the, the liberals or something like that. They'll say something to signal, like, I'm not with you. Like, they'll go out of their way to be um, antagonistic and to say that they are another. So very good point. Signals can be directed at the out group just as much as they can be di- directed at an in-group. And another point I should, I should back up and say is that when I, when I say that there are beliefs that, have, that are adaptive in these ways, that have signaling functions, I don't think that we're typically consciously aware of what we're doing and scheming to have beliefs you know, with these particular functions. I think uh, normally the, these are acquired unconsciously without our, our, our awareness. Um, just like you might have a, a belief that's motivated because it makes you feel good, but you're not aware of the fact that that's why you have the belief. Likewise, we have beliefs that function to, to communicate things to other people, but I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is part of a conscious, intentional uh, plan that we have. It's purposive, okay, uh, and it's functional, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's intentional or in, and conscious.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, th- that bit about them not necessarily being intentional or conscious, uh, I think makes a good segue to self-deception, but... Just before we get into it specifically, let me just ask you one more question about dangerous beliefs. So because they are generally, I guess, so costly, do you think that we should expect them to be more common among uh, more extreme social groups? So let's say, for example, uh, if we're talking about politics, that these dangerous beliefs would be more common among people who are part of the extreme right or the extreme left or not necessarily. Right.
1: Right. So costly signals in general, like why, why are there costs? Well, there are costs because there's a a concern about cheaters. Okay. Uh Um, Dishonest signalers. And this could be an objection to to my view. It's like, what's the incentive? Do do we, is there evidence that, that people are incentivized to fake their partisan um, affiliations, and if not, then we don't need costly signaling at all because costly signaling is just to deter cheaters. And if there's no incentive to cheat, then you don't need costly signaling at all. Right. Well, well, I think dangerous beliefs not only show your group identity, but also your level of commitment to that group. Okay, so so it's not just that it shows that you belong in a on a certain team, that there's a certain tribe you're a member of, but it's supposed to show your degree of commitment mm-hmm. to that, that tribe. And that's probably a signal that's directed to in-group members, uh, so dangerous beliefs can be incentivized to show your degree of commitment. Like, yeah, so polarization, uh, you, you could see this logic, that like people think, okay, the more extreme my, my position, the more I show I'm devoted to the team. Mm-hmm. Right, more committed. And that would be an in-group directed um, communication. Um, mm-hmm. So that can explain dangerous beliefs, not because people are incentivized to fake being right wing, but just amongst those who are right wing, there's some who are more committed than others. Uh, and how do we discern who are the most committed? Well that's where dangerous or maybe just extreme beliefs uh, play a role. In knowing, knowing who are the most loyal group members.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but uh, I mean, the, the question I asked you, perhaps what I had in mind was something more along these lines. So, uh, it, for you to express dangerous beliefs, of course, uh, people that are part of the group you want to signal to have to uh, accept and tolerate those beliefs, right? So, uh, so for example, I, I would imagine that. Uh, people that are for example on the far right or the far left would be tolerant of more more uh, a, a higher number of dangerous beliefs than someone with a moderate or a centrist or someone like that i mean i'm not sure if this makes sense or not
1: no it I, I yeah i take your point that they have to be tolerant of them but i don't know that they actually have to accept them so like for example you might have elites in a political party that, um, let's say they don't care about gun rights at all, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Um, they care about just like tax policy or something like that. But they will tolerate amongst their 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 uh, the masses, like extreme positions on gun rights, because mm-hmm. it shows commitment to that yeah. group, even if the elites don't share that they themselves maybe don't Uh, accept that but they'll tolerate that because that okay we know that they're committed to me Um, they take this extreme position on gun rights where but maybe the elite partisans perhaps uh, don't even care about that they just care about like tax policy or something like that so they could value a belief in group members could value a belief as a signal of group commitment even if those group members don't share that belief they themselves don't accept it Mm um uh but they're like okay this is good this is a good test nonetheless to show to 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 be assured that they're committed to us
0: Mm -hmm. right so let's get now into self-deception then so uh what is self-deception i mean what kind of framework do you use to tackle self-deception because there's the sort of robert rivers's self-deception kind of approach and then there are also other approaches to self-deception so do do we adopt a particular approach and uh, do you think that self-deception would connect in any way to what we've been talking about uh, beliefs in general
1: good i mean there's a ton to say here i've written a book on Self deception, and, and mm-hmm. I came from this originally from like the just philosophical literature where you know, reading people like Donald Davidson or Al Mealy and Robert Audi figures mm-hmm. like that on, on self deception. It's only more recently, well, last 10 years maybe, um, that I've shifted to this other kind of literature like you're talking about, like Robert Trivers, but also there's an the economics literature on basically what self deception Okay. So first, what is self-deception? So uh, there's a lot of disagreement as to how we should categorize self-deception, but at a minimum, self-deception, I take it, is motivated irrationality that serves some kind of purpose. So the idea is like you want to believe, you're incentivized to believe something, okay, either because it makes you feel good or Gains you social benefits or whatever there's some kind of motivate motivation or incentive to believe something the evidence does not actually support uh, that that belief that you're motivated to have and so you have to engage in some kind of deceptive enterprise to get yourself to believe what you want to believe that's basically the core of self-deception as I understand it So it's purpose of motivated irrationality. Now, beyond that, one of the big divisions uh, in the philosophical literature on self-deception is um, between what are called intentionalists and motivationalists. So I just said that um, the self-deceived have some kind of project where they're they're trying to get themselves towards a favored belief that the evidence doesn't support. Well, are they intending to deceive themselves? Is, is this an intentional project? Or are they merely motivated? That's the division between intentionalism and motivation, motivationalist accounts. Are they intending to deceive themselves or are they just, as a matter of fact, motivated? Okay, so how involved is the agent in their own deception? Because there are all sorts of paradoxes uh, that arise. Like if, Ricardo, if I want to deceive you, it's easy to understand how that can happen because I can have information that you don't have. And so, like, uh, I can hide things from you and I can set up fake evidence in order to mislead you. But when you apply that to the self, where the deceiver and the deceived are one and the same person, that doesn't seem really um, coherent. How can I hide something from myself? If I know enough to hide it, then then it's not really hidden from me. Like, it seems like it would be impossible to succeed if it's this intentional project that's that's carried out. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, now, um, and, and so there are these philosophers who who have a, what's called a deflationary approach to self-deception. They think, ah, oh, it's just basically a motivated bias. Like Al Mealy's uh, book from about 20 years ago is a classic example of of, of this kind of account where you just have these biases uh, hot biases that are motivated, and that's what it is to be self-deceived. It's not really an intentional project like Donald Davidson, or before that, Freud thought it was. you know, self deception is a very kind of, like you have little agents basically in your mind. You've got the id, and you've got the, the superego, you know, you got a censor here, all this stuff. Um, I think that there's actually self-deception that is, um, um, quite sophisticated, um, where the unconscious mind shows really strong evidence of scheming against uh, uh, the conscious mind. I think there are very robust, sophisticated, unconscious um, um, powers. There can be unconscious goal pursuit. So I think it's possible for there to be self-deception in which the the person is really actively involved in a self-deceptive project that shows that deep down, they know exactly what evidence to avoid, they know what kind of ras- rationalizations are convincing, which aren't. Maybe deep down they do have some possession of the truth, and it's like interpersonal deception, but in the, in the first-person case, the unconscious mind is holding on to these these, these truths that it's not letting the conscious mind um, access. Now, I also think that there are these other cases, like the Al Mealy type cases where people are just motivated to to believe something like that they're better than average uh, and there's nothing more sophisticated than that going on. And I'm willing to count those as cases of self-deception as well. So I'm very liberal as to what I count uh, as self-deception. But I tend to be more interested in what I call the cases of robust self-deception where The self-deception seems to go beyond merely being a motivated bias. There really does seem to be some kind of agency involved, and a lot of times the unconscious seems to be playing a prominent role, and um, there's evidence maybe of dual belief, that the person kind of believes the truth, even though the conscious mind is thinking and asserting um, what's false. yeah, I'll pause
0: there. Uh, no, right. Uh, I mean, I was uh, thinking about how, how to unpack that. But I, I mean, first of all, do you tend to fall more on the camp of the intentionalists or the motivationalists?
1: Okay, it depends on what you mean by that. Do I think self-deception must be this kind of intentional project or at least project that like really robustly involves the person's agency? I don't think that's necessary for self-deception, but there, there are deflationists who think, not only is that ne- not necessary, but it's not possible that the person could be actively involved in this self-deceptive project. I certainly think it's possible. I think it's actual. I think there are actual cases where where, where a person is actively involved in their own uh, deception, very similarly to how I could be actively involved in, de- involved in de- deceiving you, um, As a a different person. Okay. So, um, do I think um, self-deception requires um, intentions to deceive or active agency? No. Do I think that that occurs? Yes. Do that is. Do I think that there's self-deception that um, where the person is really actively involved as an agent in a deceptive project? Yes. I think it, it occurs, even though it's not necessary for self-deception.
0: But the, the person being actively involved in a self-deception process, could, could you give us an example of how that would happen?
1: Very good. Okay, so let's take a classic example of self-deception. Like um, a husband, uh, there's evidence at hand that his wife is being unfaithful. Okay, uh, he, he's motivated to not believe this, though. He has an incentive. This is understandable. He doesn't want to believe that his wife is being unfaithful. Um, Maybe the evidence suggests that she's having an affair with a particular person. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she's away from the house and the husband's going to go out. And um, uh, the quickest route would involve driving by the house of the, the man that there's reason to think that she's actually having an affair with. If he goes out of his way to avoid driving that route, like avoidance behavior, to me that's evidence that the person knows exactly where not to look and that they at least suspect um, that, that she's there and they don't want to confront that reality. So when people engage in avoidance behavior, I think that shows that they suspect if not outright believe the truth, um, but they're taking active steps to make sure they avoid confronting that reality. This happens all the time, not just with like someone having an affair potentially, but like uh, as a parent, um, maybe there's evidence that my, reasonably that my, my, my child is doing drugs that I don't want them to do. And so um, I make a point of like not searching their pockets you know, when I'm doing the laundry, you know, I don't want to confront, you know. So so if, if someone strategically knows exactly what to avoid, okay, and if that is sophisticated enough, to me that's some evidence that, okay, they, they're they actively engaging in, in a deceptive process. They're manipulating their, their evidence um, as an agent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the self-deception isn't something that's just passively um, affecting them, like a motive affecting reasoning. No, they're taking steps, they're making efforts to participate in their own deception, and perhaps in a way that that, that indicates that they know or at least suspect more than what they're letting on.
0: Right. I, I mean, I understand the example, but I, I mean, this, this is sort of a complicated thought, but I will try my best to articulate it. But uh, I mean, perhaps this is a matter of how uh, I understand self-deception and perhaps how you understand self-deception. But I mean, in that particular case, I understand yeah, avoiding a particular source of information prevents you from getting access to that information and you're doing that to yourself. Yeah, I, I understand that. But when I usually think about self-deception, I tend to think about something that... Uh, something like, okay, so uh, even if you have access to a particular kind of information, you're, uh, I I don't know, it's complicated, but perhaps uh, consciously uh, you do not really get, um, I I mean, uh, consciously uh, that information does not play a role in how you behave. So, for example, let's say that I uh, self uh, uh, that I self deceive um, my uh, that I self deceive into believing that I am uh, more intelligent than I really am. So, uh, w- uh, if that's the case, then uh, w- what I would be doing is 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 that I wouldn't even. Uh, know or or wouldn't even uh, p- perhaps uh, have any sort of idea that I was really less intelligent than I think I am so that, that would mean in the particular case of for example my wife or I suspecting that my wife might be uh, sh- cheating on me uh, I, I mean not even having access. Uh, conscious access to that uh, feeling that she might be cheating on me to begin with, you know, uh, sort of suppressing that uh, thought or idea or belief or whatever you want to call it. I I mean, I'm not sure if I'm being clear here because at least in my mind, these are very complicated stuff, but but what do you think about it?
1: Well, I I mean, there's a lot of suppression and repression in, in self-deception. Mm. Um, you're, I mean, you're you're suppressing your your motives a lot of times, yeah. um, and you're also uh, suppressing like how you're responding to the, the those motives. The fact that you're that they're affecting. Your, your evidence search and your, your rationalizations or your hypothesis generation, right? You have to suppress a, a lot of that stuff. So this gets at what's called the dynamic puzzle of self-deception, mm-hmm. like how could mm-hmm. we possibly succeed at deceiving ourselves um, if all this were before us, you know? No. If I'm deceiving you, if you knew everything that I was doing, you wouldn't mm-hmm. be deceived right? If you could read my mind and see my actions, you wouldn't be deceived. So in the first person case, if I was aware of my motives and what I was doing, there's no possible way I could succeed uh, at self-deception. There has to be some kind of um, opacity to it, okay? And another complication is we can't just believe what we want to believe, right? We cannot believe at will, and that means mm. that there has to be some kind of the, the, these intermediary steps we have there has to be some kind of uh, machinations you know like a process we, we we go through, and we cannot be fully aware of that so I think that self deception inevitably involves a failure of self knowledge mm. okay we can't be aware okay. of what we 're up to or even our, our motives, and like Freud was very much on to this, this fact, right? This is, I mean, I'm not a Freudian across the board, but I think there are a lot of insights from Freud that that are true, that the unconscious mind is very robust and powerful and that there are these motives and operations that we're not consciously aware of. And there are processes we can go through that make ourselves aware of these things. This goes back to our kind of your opening questions today. Um, you know, and, uh, that should give us knowledge that would make this self-deceptive project evaporate like so so self-deception cannot operate in, you know uh in a transparent mind mm-hmm. it has to be some degree of uh opacity or for self-deception to be uh effective now another thing you did mention earlier was the connection between self-deception and signaling so i definitely mm-hmm. think that there are connections between these things that um So, I write on self-deception, I write on signaling, I see these both as species of motivated or incentivized irrationality, okay? Mm -hmm. That can sometimes be adaptive. I'm not saying that they're always adaptive. Like, I'm not saying that self-deception is always adaptive, at least. Um, But it sometimes might be, I think. Um, um, And and not all self-deception is for the sake of signaling. Mm -hmm. Trivers, his account of self-deception does emphasize something like signaling, that we self-deceive in order to communicate this to other people. He thinks, fundamentally, we self-deceive so as to better deceive others. Right. Okay, so it's a communicative function. That's where I actually kind of got my belief signaling. This was a big influence on me uh, in coming up with the signaling hypothesis, Trivers' account of self-deception, where self-deception really isn't first personal. That's not the function or benefit, primarily. It's communicative. Okay. But Trevor's emphasized transmitting a belief to other people. Like, you have a belief so as to better deceive others, to transmit that falsehood to others. We self-enhance so that other people um, come to acquire our self-enhancing beliefs. They think better of us also, okay? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, in my first paper on, on beliefs and signals, I say, well... Uh, the social purpose isn't always like Trevor says. Sometimes we don't want to transmit a belief or we're not so interested in that. We just want to advertise the fact that we have a certain belief so that people classify us and think of us in a certain way. Like, oh, he's a Christian. He's not going to lie. He's going to take oaths seriously or, you know, whatever. um, um, Even if they're not Christian, like the, the, the value isn't necessarily in transmitting the belief to someone else, but just in them attributing the belief to us And then um inferring that we have certain qualities on the basis of that belief attribution just like the peahen in effect of course not consciously infers that the um the peacock is genetically fit because it has an impressive tail feather and so i think but um so 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 trivers had this account of self-deception that's to communicate something to others i said well it, it might we might just signal a belief to others and i'll so so, I think beliefs as signals are incentivized are 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 motivated and that self deception certainly plays a role in uh, maintaining beliefs as signals okay that we're motivated to have these beliefs and a lot of times the evidence doesn't support it, and we engage in a process of self deception to to maintain um the beliefs that function as signals
0: mm-hmm. uh, so uh... In your mind, what would you say are the main functions of self-deception?
1: Okay, so I would make another big division. Like there there are these kind of personal functions of self-deception where sometimes we do self-deceive just to feel good or to boost our self-esteem or mm-hmm. to get confidence. Where, I mean, that's a personal where, regardless of whether or not there are social benefits to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, and then there's this other category of, of functions that self-deception serves, which is um, which are social, okay? Mm-hmm. That we self-deceive to um, conform to our society, to have what Kahan, Dan Kahan, you probably know his work, calls um, um, identity protective cognition, mm-hmm. okay? That's basically kind of like conformity. We want to belong to the group, be part of the group, or what I would call, signaling sometimes we self-deceive in order to have a belief that gives us social value uh some kind of social benefit uh, as a signal okay Mm -hmm. so there are all sorts of functions that self-deception serves the two categories i would emphasize are the personal and the social so uh, the personal in the psychological literature uh, stuff on positive illusions uh, captures that kind of functionality for the social the Trivers, the Kahan, um, the, the stuff on signaling gets gets at those those kinds of functions, those literatures.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, one last question then. Uh, with all of those functions in mind, do we know if self-deception works? I mean, so I will just mention an example, but you can go through the other functions as well so when it comes to uh, using self deception to then deceive other people i mean to make other people believe that we are a certain way that we ourselves also believe even though it doesn't really correspond to the truth does it work or not
1: i mean as a general rule i think so if you're if you're asking specifically if self deception works so as to better better convince others mm-hmm. you know just think of I mean, um, anecdotal examples, you know, from real life. If someone's a salesperson, you know, they're, they're probably gonna be more effective if they actually believe in the product themselves. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, you're more convincing if you actually have the belief yourself. So I think okay. the answer to the question is, yes. Yeah, self-deception works, generally speaking, as a strategy in better um, convincing others, because it, you're more convincing if you genuinely have the belief yourself. I think that's true. So if I like, I could try to like um, convince my boss uh, that I deserve a raise mm-hmm. um, by either like just outright like kind of lying or, or, or thinking I deserve, you know, saying I deserve the raise when I don't really believe it. But I think I'm going to be more convincing if I actually believe it myself. So yeah. Like, Trivers focuses on things like cognitive load. Um, um, if you don't actually have the belief yourself, then you have to have these two representations in mind, the, the fictional one, the lie, and then the truth, and that this is taxing, and that um, if we're under cognitive load, like, uh, we'll kind of um, tip our hand and reveal what we actually believe. We'll have like these moments of kind of weakness where people will see through and know that we're lying, and so it won't be as effective. Okay. And also, Trivers emphasizes that we tend to punish liars, and so that's a real risk you expose yourself to if you're not actually self-deceived. But if you're self-deceived, even if people find out that we were wrong, that we're not as good as we said we were, if they know that we really believed it, they're not gonna punish us as much. We don't punish people for being wrong, uh, for having false beliefs, generally speaking. We, or we punish people for being liars. Okay, that's, that, 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 that's a bad thing. So, yeah, I mean, I do think self-deception uh, is effective if the goal is to communicate something uh, to other people, um, be, because we're more convincing. Um, now, if the question is more generally, does self-deception work? Um, I mean, you gotta flag the worries here also, the, the concerns. Uh, just like there are problems with lies, like lies tend to spread. You know, people are very familiar with this. Uh, A lie, it's difficult to keep it contained. And so, too, with self-deception. If we self-deceive about one thing, a lot of times it it spreads. And when it Mm -hmm. forces us to to be self-deceptive about other matters. So if we, uh, I don't know, go to one of our earlier examples, vaccine skepticism. Like maybe if the scientific consensus is that the vaccine is effective, now we have to be uh, skeptical about science in general so you know it just spreads and this can get this can get us in, in, in trouble because maybe we don't want to reject science wholesale but we're like ah pushed in that kind of direction I mean another worry about self-deception is that reality tends to matter and force itself upon us so like um, if we're engaged in self-deception this isn't like an on- this, this is a big point about self-deception it's an ongoing project because it's not enough to just get yourself to believe something, you have to maintain that belief, right? And so there's always new evidence coming in, like so the world's feeding you new evidence that you have to accommodate in your motivatedly biased way. Um, and not just that, but other people are telling you things. And so self-deception isn't a one-time thing, you can't do it just mm-hmm. once you know, it's this ongoing project. So it can be quite taxing. But all that being said, yeah, I mean, self-deception certainly works. Like there are people that have um, self-deceptive beliefs that persist an entire lifetime. So it is possible to have these uh, sustained and that you systematically filter bias and interpret evidence in a way that uh, towards your favorite belief.
0: Okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Funkhauser, uh, I hope that uh, when, whenever you finish your upcoming book, The Signaling Mind, I will have you back on the show. Uh, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the Internet?
1: Okay, yeah. So, I'm a professor at the University of Arkansas. I have a, a site there at University of Arkansas. If you Google me, I have a Google, uh, Google site. Uh, it's Google Sites, and then it's at uh, eFunko, but if you Google it, it'll it'll come up right away, Eric Funkhauser. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, as well, and I have a Phil People. If there's a lot of philosophers out there, Phil People profile. That's another good way to access me and, and, and my papers and books.
0: So. Okay, That's probably the best way. Okay, I'm leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you.
1: I have really enjoyed it, Ricardo. And I, I like your series of interviews more generally. You're doing a great service to all of us. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. Please do not forget to share the video, subscribe to the channel, and also leave a like. And if you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in the description box of the interview. This show is brought to you by Nlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perugal Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whitting, Bird, Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windega, Rui Nassio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavanaugh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andrea, Francis Fort, Nunes, Alexander Den Bauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Librant. João Linhar, Stanton T., Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hummel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Iassila Desarauj, Roman Roach, Diego Londoño Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Blizz, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasebski, Nellek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, Syma Fzal, Adrian Yeguinik, Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Ursula Litske, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morton Eichland. Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loacki, George Esteofan, Chris Williamson, Peter Walozin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grasses. Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Bernabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Nissen, Chris Story, and Manuel Oliveira. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Dugny, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Turnbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis, and Al Nick Ortiz. And to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sérgio Codrian and Bogdan Kanivets, thank you for all.